Um, I want to reflect upon the kind of orientations that we have in our practice and in our path. In my understanding, the, the Buddha was you know, very much a realist. He was really most deeply concerned with embodiment, an embodied way of being in this life. He didn't really express much interest in metaphysical debate. And his approach to meditation was not one of, you know, let's all sit down and have some amazing experience, you know, or some amazing altered state of consciousness. And when the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree, he, he didn't actually report, you know, well, go out and say, you know, I had this really amazing mystical moment there. He actually got up from the Bodhi tree and talked about a very radical shift in his way of seeing, his way of understanding. And his emphasis was that that radical shift in his way of seeing and understanding was, of course, only meaningful and only going to be meaningful if it permeated his entire being, if it permeated his acts, his speech, his way of thinking, his way of relating. And this was his encouragement to turn towards the classroom of our lives as the place where we find those same shifts. Um, and I hope won't mind in one of my meetings this morning, you know, speaking about this is it. This is it. You know, it's not about some future place or some ideal moment or some perfect set of conditions. Where we are right now, this is it. This is our classroom. And there isn't a curriculum outside of that classroom about how we live, how we understand, how we relate inwardly to the world that we discover moment to moment. And hopefully in that world we're discovering moment to moment and meeting moment to moment. We are developing those understandings of what it is that leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress and making that a very an investigation of some immediacy, concerned with where we are and how we are just now. The Buddha recognized, you know, that in our lives, all of us have moments of really unsought for joy and, and happiness, the loveliness of some of the sights and sounds we meet, the loveliness of our, some of our encounters with the world, they really gladden our hearts. And he recognized the potentiality of the human mind, the human heart, for tremendous depths of compassion and clarity and kindness and joy, and the potential to ease the kind of mountain of suffering in our world. And the Buddha, I think, this is one of his primary insights, was really seeing the mind, the heart, as process, as always abiding in a state of potentiality, 
with the capacity for joy and the capacity for distress. And of course, what the practice teaches us is that we actually have a hand in how this heart and mind is being shaped in this moment. It's not always an accident that we end up in the places that we end up. And I think in, in encouraging that understanding, um, you know, the Buddha really did seek for graduates. He, he didn't seek for a body of perpetual students. He actually sought, encouraged people to come to exactly the same liberating insights that he had come to in his own journey. And just as the Buddha recognized the potentiality of the heart, the mind for great depth and great clarity, he also recognized the potentiality of the mind for great distress and great pain. And we know that in our experience. We know the landscapes of grief. We know the landscapes of being separated from what we love. We know the landscapes of loss. We know the landscapes of the difficulties of a chaotic mind or a broken heart. We know the landscapes of pain, of just not getting what we want uh, on every level. And this, too, all lives in the classroom of our experience. Sometimes this is our it. This is where we're asked to learn. This is not where we're asked to somehow become manipulative and, uh, you know, in shaping a different landscape. This is where we're asked to learn. This is where we're asked to understand. About how we do have a hand in shaping our heart, our mind of the moment, and in that also have a hand in shaping our world of the moment. I suspect that most of us would recognize that the process of waking up is, is not always easy, is it? It's sometimes very challenging, and sometimes we, we, we become so aware of the kind of the lure of many of our habits of unconsciousness. Sometimes we just really don't want to be here. You know, theoretically, waking up sounds great. But in practice, we often encounter the fact that we just don't want to be here. It's not easy. And, you know, it was not easy 2,500 years ago. And one of the stories from the text that I really have a great fondness of is, is when the, the Buddha once encountered a, a, a man standing on one leg in, in the forest. And the Buddha asked the man, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, he says, I'm working out my karma. And, and the Buddha says, well, you know, how much have you got rid of? Uh, you know, and the man says, well, I have no idea. And, and, and the Buddha asks, you know, well, how much have you got left to go? And, and the man answers, well, I have no idea. And the Buddha asks, well, how will you know when you've completed this task, you know, and can put your leg down, you know? And the man says, well, I have no idea. And it was one of those moments, of course, in the text where the Buddha launches into one of his great, you know, you foolish person, blah, blah, blah bits. 
But I actually think, you know, we can look at this as a sort of, you know, historical story that, you know, doesn't have much to do with us. I, I think it has a whole lot to do with us, quite frankly. Um, it's not so... I think we have our own ascetic practices today. And I think sometimes we see those kind of ascetic uh, practices coming into, into view uh, on a retreat. And sometimes they're very unquestioned. I think some of our ascetic practices are are bringing layers of, of shame and guilt and doubt to the chaos we sometimes meet. I think sometimes uh, our ascetic practices are all to do with judgment and self-improvement and imagining you know, a much better moment to be in, the, the waiting habit. When we practice on a retreat, we, we really do begin, I think, to get a sense about how much this pathway is about really a pathway of intimacy. It's a pathway of being intimate with all things and all moments. And in that intimacy, the coming closer, ever closer to this moment as it is, there, there's an illumination that happens. Mindfulness really has this effect almost of of illuminating the world of experience. You know, the world of experience comes out of the shadows, out of the murkiness, out of the vagueness, and somehow is just brightened or lit up by that quality of mindfulness that we bring to this moment of experience that reveals, reveals what's going on. And, and what we see, what we do on a retreat, is how much we, we kind of yield and, and, and willingly give up many of our avoidance patterns of busyness and distractedness that actually serve to, to darken and to, to dull the world of experience. And in that process of illumination, we're kind of stripped bare, I think, of many of our layers of filter and camouflage and justification and speculation and explanation just to see what is actually happening. I must confess, this doesn't always feel like such good news, you know, because sometimes in that kind of stripping bear, we also become so acutely aware of uh, you know, how much our, our moments in our lives can be so governed by habit. And I don't mean just physical habit, uh, you know, psychological habit, and even the habit of selfing can just be so tedious, can't it? I mean, do you ever get tired of yourself? yourself? Do you ever, I, mean, it's, I think it's a really good thing, actually, just to get tired of ourselves, you know? It's like just losing interest in this whole inventing and reinventing of, of a me that has to sort of lead everything. But this, this kind of discomfort, I think, in, in intimacy and exposure, I, I think of it very much as really being a first step of waking up and a, a first step of no longer being governed by those habit patterns. And yet it, it, it's, a, it's a territory to tread so carefully because we, we're so prone to personalize it all, aren't we? 
um, to build a self-image on, on a sense of imperfection, um, to build a, a self-image of, of inadequacy or failure on, on a sense of imperfection. And I think that my sense, my observation is that this is when we, we engage in, in another, I think it's a particularly evolved Western approach to practice, which is when actually we turn what we're doing here, we turn this contemplative journey, this journey of investigation, this journey of contemplation, this journey of stilling, it's so easy when we're backed up by sort of judgment and views of imperfection to actually turn this into work. You know, and this is a word I think I only ever hear in Western practice, you know, about everything we have to work on. You know, I'm, you know I remember someone not long ago coming on a retreat and telling me it was the first time in 20 years when they didn't bring to a retreat something that they were working on. And it, at first it felt kind of strange, you know, not to have a job to do on retreat, you know, not to have a project to do on retreat. But I think we get very seduced by this sort of background ideology of imperfection into this ideology of working. I'm working on my issues. I'm working on my difficulties. I'm working on my imperfections, you know, and I, I work on my cushion and I work on my walking path. And we're really good at working because we have such a sort of history, a cultural history of, of working on things. And I think sometimes it's a little bit like the person on one leg, you know, how, there's some questions to ask ourselves. How on earth do we ever measure where we are in our work? And have you noticed the endlessness of the work? You know, there's that wonderful kind of poem that says, you know, I, you know, I worked on my rage, you know, and now I'm a sexual elephant, you know, and I worked on my craving, you know, and now I'm filled with doubt that I need to work on. Have you ever noticed that as long as there's a kind of centralization of self, there will always be another project? There will always be something that's not quite perfect, or that's not quite acceptable, or that's not quite right. right. How do we measure where we are, and what is the solution that we envisage? And are we aware of how working on things can be a disguised aversion? But also, who is doing the work? Who is doing the work? And we see how easily we centralize this sense of self in all things, not seeing how this sense or this view of self is implicated in the issues that we are then working on. You know, I don't want to be so judgmental. You know, I'm a judgmental person. I don't want to be so judgmental. I have to stop being such a judgmental person. You know, we can sort of hear that, that kind of voice, not seeing actually the person who wants to be not so judgmental is actually the person who's actually generating the judgmental voice. It's, the implication is so big, and then we tell ourselves, I have to let go. Well, good luck with that. In a, and you might have noticed how spectacularly unsuccessful you are in your commands to let go. It's not really an operative policy, I might say. It's actually quite a useful one. You know, if we see something as operationally ineffective, it's quite a, it just makes common sense to give it up. 
you know. And commanding ourselves to let go just does not work. That doesn't mean that there's not unbinding, that there's not letting go. Of course there is. But not because I am doing it. We're still standing on one leg. It's interesting, isn't it, that even though we, we kind of... The teaching of non-self, you know, is an experiential understanding, isn't it? I mean, we, we do see this kind of changing shape of me in a single day, you know, and how there really isn't a kind of centralized, independent self-existence anywhere. And yet we still imagine, you know, we, we see that, you know, we're not really in the, you know, flying the plane, you know, we're not really have our hands on the steering wheel. And yet somehow in this kind of ideology where we're shouting at ourselves to let go, we still imagine that somewhere maybe hidden inside ourselves or there's some really wise self that's somehow going to come to the forefront in the in a moment of need and have this previously undiscovered power to let go. It's actually not how it works. And I think it's not borne out, borne out in the text. You know, I, I do feel there's a way that we can stand on one leg for a very, very long time in this practice. Instead, I think the Buddha proposed really quite a different approach, that in the midst of our chaotic mind, in the midst of our sometimes difficult life, in the midst of some of the storms that can arise, he introduced this this word most of you will be familiar with, a bhavana, which is poorly translated as meditation, um, to cultivate, to bring into being, to cultivate and to bring into being. It's a question I think we ask ourselves in every moment, what is being cultivated, what is being brought into being in this moment. You know, I, I really actually have so much more affection for for that word and that approach than meditating. Meditating often feels to me a bit of a flat word, you know. I go and I close my eyes and I meditate. Whereas actually to think of cultivating, bringing into being, for me feels very much more engaged and very much more dynamic, recognizing that we are cultivating and bringing something into being in every moment of our lives often quite unintentionally. You know, often what we're bringing into being is, is many of our habit patterns and our familiar landscape of reactivity. And what the Buddha actually described is this, this very much more dynamic way of, of walking this path where we, rather than feeling that we're going to our cushion to chip away at the rock face, you know, rolling up our sleeves and getting to work, we actually come to our cushion and ask ourselves, what is being cultivated? What is being brought into being in this moment? And for me, this feels like such a more kind of joyful, curious, alive approach to this path and to this practice. And then we see, actually, how letting go actually works how it actually happens. You know, because what we cultivate and bring into being, of course, are all of the, the lovely, healing, liberating qualities and capacities of our heart and mind. 
what we're cultivating and bringing into being is our capacity for calm, for stillness, for investigation, for understanding, for kindness. This is what we're cultivating and bringing into being in every moment. Then we see that is actually what does the relinquishing. That's actually what does the unbinding. You know, and you can check this out in your own experience. I don't know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of, of sitting or walking with a, with a mind that feels very contracted and very, very sticky and, and heavy, and, and a difficult thought or a difficult memory arises or is triggered, and it just sticks, doesn't it? It just like it's got the f perfect conditions to stick in. You know, it's like mud, you know, it's just like it's got the perfect conditions. But we can be sitting or walking another time with a mind that feels quite spacious and quite open and quite balanced. And exactly the same difficult thought or memory can arise and it just passes right on through, doesn't it? It doesn't stick. So as she's through the cultivation of all that is healing, all that is lovely, all that is liberating, what we're actually cultivating is a mind which is inclined to unbinding, letting go, relinquishing. Not as an act of will, but because the conditions for unbinding are present, rather than the conditions for stickiness being present. And as in the path, we're actually learning to make our, our home in those qualities, rather than in the contracted, more contracted prisons of identification. The Buddha, I think, was a, a real, a, a genuine realistic realist. You know, he, he just never underestimated the, the kind of stubborn and intractable nature of many of our habit patterns, the patterns that create and recreate distress and pain over and over again. He never underestimated the toxic power and the toxic grip of patterns of aversion and craving and doubt and despair. You know, and, and you know, he once said, I, I just know of no one thing that can do so much harm as an untrained heart but that once understood, I can think of no one thing that is a greater friend and a greater ally than a well-trained heart. But he so recognized that the process of waking up, the process of liberating, is not easy. How elusive compassion and kindness can feel in, in the midst of an aversive storm you know how how elusive calmness and stillness can feel in the in a surge of, of agi agitation and the you know there's a there is a tension in waking up and I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that tension tension t-e-n-s-i-o-n it's important to not acknowledge that tension because we I think we see it in our practice and we see it in our lives don't we the the awareness of dissonance, the awareness of sometimes the, the gap between what our intentions and aspirations and values are really concerned with and how we're actually living or speaking or acting. Anybody aware of that? I should imagine, you know, we go out in our day, you know, really with the intention and the aspiration to be a pretty decent, caring, 
respect for a person until, you know, the train is late or we meet the irritating person or something doesn't go our way. And then we see how easily that those, those values, those aspirations and intentions get sabotaged, actually, by the habit patterns. <laughs> So we, we, are, we are often, you know, I mean, we don't come into a sitting, do we, with the intention to fall asleep. You know, we don't come into a, into a sitting with the intention to, to just get lost in chaos. You know, mostly there's a, hopefully, there's a different kind of intention we bring into the hall or our walking path. And yet the sabotaging factor of habit is, is very powerful. And I think the Buddha recognizes so clearly, and it's nowhere more clearly portrayed than in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the first fourth way of establishing mindfulness, where the Buddha sets the hindrance factors alongside the awakening factors. And these, these are related, and I'll, I'll break these down in a minute for those of you who are not familiar with it. These are interrelated. Now, I know earlier on in the retreat, uh, one, one of our teams spoke about the hindrance factors. But it's really being aware of, you know, I, I find more and more as I teach, this is something I talk about more and more. You, know, you remember the short list of the craving for sensual pleasure, the aversion, the restlessness and worry, the sloth and torpor, the doubt. It, this is a good list to memorize, by the way. These are very universal patterns. But the Buddha, you know, didn't just talk about these as something that happens in meditation or something to get over. You know, instead the Buddha spoke about this continuum, you know, about the how the five hindrance factors are the five ways in which greed, hatred, and delusion actually express themselves in our life and about how greed, hatred, and delusion are almost like the three manifestations of, of ignorance or confusion. So we spoke about this continuum. So it's really something not to take lightly, the way that these habit patterns can, can move through our lives and move through our minds and be familiar visitors to us, on and off the cushion. And it's really useful to, to begin to really recognize them. But, and we see that the way that the hindrance factors really pull us in the direction of, of continually being kind of bound to distress and confusion. Hmm? How the hindrance factors are really the, the states of mind that allow habit to be sustained but allow habit to be sustained. And how the hindrance factors are really the conditions that allow, for example, the ideology of selfing to really be sustained and nourished. So the Buddha spoke about this continuum of, 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 of ignorance, of greed, hatred, delusion, of the hindrance factor, but in seeing this and seeing the, the kind of pervasiveness of, of the hindrance factors, he, he didn't encourage people to despair or to give up or to say that it's hopeless. Again, you nobody know, really pointed to is that this is where, this is our classroom. This is our curriculum. This is where we learn to awaken. And in the midst of this, we learn to cultivate. We cultivate many things. We cultivate spaciousness. We 
cultivate investigation, we cultivate calmness, we cultivate mindfulness. Because if the hindrances are reactive patterns, we're learning to cultivate more intentional way of ways of being. So in the midst of the these kind of play, this sort of rainbow, this spectrum of mental states that are called the hindrance pa- uh, patterns, the Buddha said this is where we cultivate the bojangas or the awakening factors. And I, I think a lot about the awakening factors and what they mean for, mean for us because, first of all, they are seeds of potential in every human heart, in every human life. They are like our greatest ally in times of confusion. They are like our greatest friend in times of despair. They're qualities that we learn to trust and to make our home in. Now, the first of these factors, probably unsurprisingly, of course, is mindfulness, is, is sati. Um, how to cultivate this way of being, or this way of wakefulness, this way of wakefulness, of mindfulness in our life that has these different dimensions from the, the kind of simple knowing that we bring into our moment-to-moment experience just to know what is happening, just to know a thought as a thought and a sensation as a sensation, to bring in this quality of, of mindfulness, which is far more protective awareness, protecting our minds through groundedness and collectedness, through intention from the surges of impulse that overwhelm us, cultivating this dimension of mindfulness, which is really concerned with investigation, with actually just checking out what is going on, checking out the process, the, the whole nature of the processes of our constructions, beginning to cultivate that interest in what is being experienced in this moment. And that dimension of mindfulness, which is very much about reframing our narratives. You know, the most classical or obvious one of that is metta. You know, how... With aversion, you know, we, we reify something or someone into being an enemy or unwelcome. And how through the cultivation of metta or kindness, the enemy turns into someone who is worthy of our respect. The enemy might be our own thoughts or emotions we don't want. With metta, they're turned into experiences that are worthy of respect. This last dimension of mindfulness is really about shifting our views, views that feel so solid and so reified, being able to to question those views. You know, I remember years ago I was teaching uh, in Israel and I, I was going to the office one morning and I saw this dog lying on the, on, the, on the ground with this great tumor coming out of its head. And it was one of those moments of just shock and horror. And I, I spent the, you know, the, the next few hours just really aware of, of you know, this poor dog and everything it needed. And I spent probably too much time in you know, 
planning my reforms of the kibbutz so that they would take better care of their animals. At lunchtime, I returned to the office, and there was the dog sitting up with its stove, its tumor, sitting on the ground beside it. And it was, of course, just a desert stone, the same color as the dog's fur. This was completely my entire construction. You know. And sometimes, you know, our views are changed by getting new information in, in this life. But I think in this practice, we ask to change our views through our own investigation of them and not being complacent in our views our views of ourselves, or our views of others, or our views of the world, and moving from this place of, of, you know, this voice inwardly that says, you know, it is, I am, you are, much more to this place, this voice that can ask questions of, is it, am I, are you? And the beginning to, to be able to have that questioning Mindfulness sounds simple, but it, it, is, it is not. It is our capacity to embrace all events and experiences equally. But you know what? The hindrances are telling us exactly not to do that. The hindrance factors are telling us, move away from what's going on. Fix it, you know? Make it different or else just numb out, you know, and dissociate and go to sleep. Investigation is the second of these awakening factors, so woven into everything that we do, both, you know, I, I think of the, the entire formal practice as being experiential investigation. You know, every time you, you know, in the simplest of ways, you know, when you, you manage to go two minutes past that flinch moment when, when the mind is saying, I can't bear this, I have to get out of here. And we just have that willingness to go two minutes past it. That's experiential investigation. You know, when we find the willingness to come to sit, when our mind is saying, no, no, there's something much more important to do right now. I don't want to be there. And we come anyway, that's experiential investigation. When we kind of find ourselves resisting the temptation to jump into that juicy fantasy and actually return to a more embodied way of being, that's experiential investigation. And there is also a value in, in reflective investigation, but that's not just about thinking or figuring out. Experiential investigation is really, really concerned with, you know, what are the discomforts that we try to avoid? You know, where do we want to go away? The third of these awakening factors, virya, is often translated as energy, but it's more about courage. It's more about courage. It's more about the, the courage to, to stand in the midst of our experience rather than to flee. It's, it's more about the courage of our, our willingness to, to show up when everything within us tells us to disappear. It's about the courage sometimes to really accommodate and embrace some of the discomfort that we find in this life and in this path. You know, that, that courage simply to be here and to be with ourselves. 
there is the quality of um, tranquility in the Satipatthana when the Buddha speaks about breathing in, calming the formations, breathing out, calming the formations. It's cultivating this quality of, of a calm abiding, a, a real genuine commitment to calm abiding rather than the commitment to agitation. The commitment to calm abiding in the midst of all things. There is a quality of, of samadhi, not concentration, but this, this kind of inner collectedness. You know, when I, when I think about samadhi in this way, what, what often comes to my mind is a, the image of Welsh sheepdogs. You know, and how, you know, many of you will know in Wales how the sheepdogs are, are sent out to, to, to collect and to gather the sheep from, you know, the hillsides that are no longer lush and, and to bring the sheep to pastures that are more nourishing for them. And, you know, the sheepdogs don't, they don't scare the sheep, they don't bite them, but they really know how to do this. You know, they're very singular in, in their dedication. But it is all about bringing the sheep to somewhere where it's more nourishing for them. And with samadhi, I often think of collectedness in this way. You know, our sheep are our wandering thoughts and our distractedness and our ideas and our, our planning. And we're learning to collect and to gently bring the mind to a place that is more nourishing and more rich for it. There is a quality of, of joy, it's so important, you know, that we, we don't and can't contrive joy, but we can learn to make room for joy. You know, nature is a great ally in this, to be able to stand and to see and to appreciate, um, to learn to be still and, and to be wholehearted. So, it, it, you know, the Buddha said that it's a disciplined heart that knows true joy. And, and, you know, he's not talking about exuberance. You know, he's not talking about elation. He's talking about a sort of sweetness, a sweetness of tasting the moment fully, the sweetness of contentment, the, the, the sweetness of appreciation, the sensitivity that allows us to be touched by very simple things. And the, in these factors of awakening, the Buddha speaks, you know, also so deeply about the cultivation of equanimity and poise, you know, used in so many ways in the teaching, from, you know, the poise amidst all the extremes of life and our mind, the sense of inner balance that we learn to find amidst that which is unsteady, but the Buddha also speaks about equanimity <coughs> interchangeably with nibbana, the blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion that really cause us to lose balance and to be unsteady. And just as you continue in the retreat, you know, I think I think there is a, a value. In, in putting your other leg down, um, uh, learning to stand with stillness, 
and learning to and and in having a sense of of what is being practiced and what is being cultivated in every moment of experience and to have a sense that there is a choice about what is being cultivated and just lastly you know that teaching of the buddhas that that which we frequently think about and dwell upon to this does our heart incline that which we frequently think about and dwell upon to this does our heart incline this is where our home is made and i think in the practice what we are really learning to do is to think about and dwell and dwell upon that which is liberating that which is ennobling that which is untangling and to this does our heart incline so thank you for your attention <laughs>